I'm Logan Bishop from Belmont University, and you're listening to Higher Ed Social, part of the Connect EDU network. I, I'm kind of training for a half marathon right now, though I don't know if it's really training because, like, I'm already to the point where I can run a half marathon. Um, but for some smart reason, on Saturday, I decided I was going to run really hard and run as fast as I can, um, which is really cool um, over short distances. But, you know, once you get to about the ninth mile, um, which i that's what I ran um, with my friend Courtney, um who is like twice as fast as me, Um, Mm -hmm. maybe not twice as fast, but a lot faster. Um, I did, in fact, break my personal record for running uh, 15K, which is nine miles. Um, In fact, I beat, I I actually ran a race like two weeks ago, and I ran nine miles in an hour and 48 minutes, which was like, wow, that's really great for me. Um, And then, uh, that's an hour and 48 I ran the nine miles on Saturday in an hour and 38 minutes. So I cut 10 minutes off my time. Wow. Um, I ran that much faster. But at the same time, like I busted my leg. Um, Like it's not that busted, um, but I can't run right now. Um, I can't walk really fast either. Um, But I just got back from uh, getting a massage uh, because, you know, self-care is important. And, uh... I've been stressed anyway, so I figured, you know, that would be a nice way to do it. Um, And now it feels better. They put this stuff on it that, like, I thought it was, like, icy hot. Like, I thought it would feel like that, but it actually feels like someone dipped your leg in ice. Um, Oh, that has to feel glorious. It did. Oh, man, the massage felt glorious. Um, At least the leg part did. Um, She's like, you're a little tense in your your calf. And I'm like, really? (laughs) I noticed. Um... (laughs) Um, but it was, uh, it's pretty good. Um, if, if you ever like, um, I I know a lot of guys sometimes can be a little squeamish about, you know, stuff like that, um, Mm -hmm. that and like manicures, but I can tell Mm -hmm. you both are awesome and Mm -hmm. guys miss out because they're too macho to do it. Um, they're wonderful. I have um, shitty joints, so like I can appreciate a good massage. Yes, hand massage, whatever it, it. And I, I soak in Epsom salt like once a week. Wow, is that because see, I've never done that? Oh, it is good. It's really worth <sighs> it. And I found that Target has an Epsom salt with coconut oil, mm-hmm. but it's it's just like because my joints are really loose and, and overextend. And so now at my age, I get early onset arthritis from, from these sore joints, not because I run just because I'm falling apart, but uh, my daughter's a runner. I've Um, I've started running just because I'm getting older. And, mm -hmm. um, now that I know my family history because of the whole 23 and me thing, um, Mm -hmm. And listeners, you can go back and listen to Chris Dorso's last episode. I'll link it in the show notes. Um, I found out my family history 
um, mm-hmm. not through it, but by accidentally finding my sister. So there's that. Oh my thing. god! Yes. Um, there's a whole episode with Chris Dorso about it. Um, mm-hmm. So if you want to go listen to it, definitely go do that. Um, and you can hear the twisted story of 23andMe and Logan bought it half off on Amazon because he thought it'd be a great, you know, great way to find out if he what kind of Asian he is and uh, ended up finding his half-sister and then his, you know, biological father and like, and then like the, now I've met the entire family, like on both sides. So it's, uh, it's a thing. But as I found out, I have a family history of like um high blood pressure and strokes and all that kind of fun stuff so um running is good um (laughs) running is going to keep me alive um and that's that is the goal the goal is to stay alive as long as possible um because apparently that's a thing now um (laughs) so um, but i was already running before i found all this stuff out but now it's like extra like um you're not just running for fun logan you're you're running so that you can see your son grow up um so yeah there you go yeah that stuff's really cool i actually i've done the 23 and me and the um the ancestry oh did you find i, I did ancestry too i uh, did you didn't find any uh brothers or sisters did you um i found a uh, my dad's first cousin that he never knew he had and she's technically my age because huh. I had a great uncle who had an affair in his fifties with a twenty-year-old, but uh, it was it was weird because the cousin practically feels like a sister, and we've hung out, we've talked. It's it's been great. That's so awesome. Um, yeah, that is so awesome. I mean, that's uh, that's as good as finding a sister. Um, yeah. So it really yeah. is. It's just adding an extra sister to the family, and it's it's been worth it. So anyway, I got a massage. Um, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Nikki, um, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about um, who you are, what you do, where you're from, how you got there. All right. Well, I've got a bit of a complex origin story. And, uh, I just love I that you started... put it as an origin story. That's just I, Well, why, what else would I use to describe it? But, uh, but yeah, so I, um, I started out as a... Um, high school English teacher for about five years until I was pregnant with my daughter. At some point during my teaching career, I realized I wasn't going to do that forever. Um, most of the teachers I knew had been close to burned out. And and I thought, well, I might as well go back to school. So I went to school for computer science. Um, and then when I, um, when I had my daughter, I gave up teaching. Um, I actually had two miscarriages before my daughter. And um, and I realized I wanted to take some time off and, you know, take care of myself. I So I consider Corinna to be like this turning point in my entire career. My daughter, Corinna, um, about 16 and a half years ago. And uh, I left teaching. I started working as a programmer over time. I became drawn to the idea of this place at Penn State that kept advertising called the World Campus. And it was online courses. And they were some tech jobs. And I thought, well, this is everything I am. I've done computer science, I'm teaching. And um, what really appealed to me about online education is that I've come from many generations of um, non-traditional students. My grandfather went back when he was in the pattern industry and um, took some industrial engineering courses. 
my mom went back to school around the time that I did. So I actually had a class with her at one point. And, um, and my youngest sister had a son when she was right in her freshman year of college. And it became difficult to take care of her son and attend class. So this idea of online learning, I felt, really spoke to me because it spoke to, you know, since we're talking about family histories, it, it was kind of in my blood, this non-traditional learner idea. And uh, so I've worked um, on and off in online courses for the past 16 years. So sometimes my expertise in higher ed is is a little bit different. I'm used to being different my entire life. But um, but yeah, it's different from the front-facing sites. Partly, you know, partly in that we're dealing with delivering content that is learning content. It's also, you know, uh, content that you're not really accessing unless you're paying for a class. And I don't get to see the students I work with face-to-face. But uh, what it's done in, in shaping me is it makes me... Um, it makes me really conscious of what we can do to reach students in all situations. There are high numbers of students in the military that take our courses, uh, students with disabilities. Our numbers are pretty high there because online allows people who may typically attend a class to actually attend one. And, you know, people who's who are at a point in their lives where they can't necessarily attend full time. So I, I, um, I felt like this was marrying the two careers in my entire life into into one solid purpose and mm-hmm. and it got me into thinking about how to how to build people up. So when it comes to building people up, um what what really what really drives that home for you? Like what why did it end up becoming you know, something so important because it's really important to me. And, and it's something that I've learned, especially with working with students, um, was the fact that, you know, being a mentor is really important, especially in that time of their lives. Um, you know, before you become professional, but at the same time, you're still having a chance to fail and all of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, what, uh, like what continues to drive you to want to do that kind of thing? So I guess the um, part of it is the, te- the teacher in me never left. Yep. And I came from a K-12 background. And I often say, you know, in, in K-12, we're, we're often taught that um, the, the student learning is our responsibility. If the student didn't learn, we're held accountable um, anymore. And so you had to do whatever you could to meet the student and bring the student up. And um, sometimes I, I I feel like in higher ed, we, we often treat education as the filter Mm -hmm. instead of the scaffold. And, um, and the teacher in me feels that, you know, we, we need to reach people. And sometimes we have to go out of our way to find the, the, the individuals to mentor. And, and what struck me is a brief period where I wasn't doing online courses. I was actually doing tech training in our libraries. And there was a systems librarian who said something that stuck with me. Um, She said that one of her mentors years and years ago told her that their job as faculty librarians is not just to have their own names on papers, but to make sure that the people they are mentoring 
are coming up and getting credit. And so this this mentor of mine, Sylvia McKinnon, who used to be at uh, Penn State University Libraries, would always, as she took on uh, mentees, she would always make sure they got first credit in any of the work that they did. Hmm. And I, I loved that. And I thought about how sometimes, you know, some of us are wired to be outgoing and to try things and other people aren't. And so sometimes being the person who's actually working on a project with you so you're not alone or um, co-presenting, and, and that's one of my favorite formats, it's, it's because it gives people that extra courage to do the thing that they wouldn't necessarily do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I used to joke uh, that, you know, talking about origin stories, I guess, the superpower that I like to think that I have is the ability to give people permission to do the thing they wanted to do anyway. <laughs> that sometimes, sometimes you have that thing that you really wanted to do and, and what you really want is somebody to say, yeah, I believe in you, or I see this hidden talent. Um, to be able to see in somebody something that they're particularly good at and seen as an individual or as an individual with potential, I think is the greatest gift we can give other people. Yeah, I think it is. Um, I think that, I think giving that permission is, I, I've, I've actually never thought of it that way before, but instilling confidence in people is really probably one of the most important things that I think any, you know, leader or mentor can do because, you know, I think the thing that holds most of us back is ourselves 90% (laughs) of the time, you know? Um, and I know that is, that's the way it has been for me. Um, because still is sometimes, um, I don't know. I mean, we all have trouble believing in ourselves, you know, it's, it's, oh, yeah. it's kind of a thing. And we need someone to say, you know, it's okay. You're smart. <laughs> You're, and I, I'm not saying that people say this to me. I'm just saying, this is what you should say in general to people. You know, you're smart. You're capable. You have, you, you have knowledge about this. Like, why can't you be trusted to do what you should be doing, you know, um, which is making things awesome. And that is a, that is a thing that I think a lot of us sometimes I wish we had, um, because some of us, you know, some of us don't always believe in ourselves. Um, and I've had that with friends. I've had that with, you know, colleagues, you know, sometimes you just have to jump in and hope for the best, um, and trust your instincts. Um, Yeah. And sometimes it's hard to ask for the help that we need. Yes, it is. Because we think we're going to be bothering somebody. And so, you know, part of it is instead of waiting to ask to help somebody out, sometimes I'll just go the extra mile and say, hey, if you need anything, I'm happy to help. I, you know, as the call for proposals for high ed web came up, I actually sent to a few people that I thought would be great presenters. I, I sent them, uh, a little t- a couple of tips and tricks for how I actually write my proposals and, and sent them an email with a reminder, a link to the form, a link to what I do in uh, Google Docs to plan my presentations and threw out that offer because I thought, you know, here are people that maybe in taking that extra step and showing that I believed in them and helping them get started, that would would help introduce them to the 
you know, to presenting. Mm-hmm. Presenting is a scary thing. Um, you know, my first presenting experience at Hyatt Web. I mean, not my first. Okay, my first conference session because I actually um, presented workshops for a couple of years. Um, I think we call them academies now. But anyway, um, I did not realize that. It's like you know, I should. I want to do one of these lightning talk things. Ten minutes. That doesn't seem so bad. Um, and uh, <laughs> turns out, see, I did not know this when I signed up for it. But it's in front of the entire conference. So not only do I have to do something that is incredibly uncomfortable for me, which is talking in front of people um, coherently and concisely in 10 minutes. Um, and those of you who are on the show know that I talk too much. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, compressing all of that into 10 minutes and then, you know, speaking in front of, you know, I was like, maybe 100 people. You know, that's, that's cool. You know, I can, uh, that's, that's pushing myself. And then I found out it was five, uh, sorry, the entire conference. And, uh, <laughs> um, what did I do? I immediately went back and completely redid the entire presentation. Um, and decided, uh, I needed to make my slides better. Um, so that's, yeah, I think I don't, you were, were you at that one? Um, oh yes, I because the... I was just looking that one up. I can't believe that was your first yeah, it was Big the first extent. lightning talk ever, too. Um, yeah, because I, I was going to share that with a colleague. Yeah. Because it, I, I refer back to that a lot, um, you know, talking about mentoring and how to build people up. Yeah. I, it was... I have people that I work with, and I'm, I I keep saying, well, you need to come to this conference. You need to talk to Logan. Well, it's, you know, when it comes to working with students, it's, you know, giving them the runway to succeed um but also the um the uh, barricade net at the end when if they fail <laughs> not when yeah. they fail but if they fail so it's you know it's like it's like star trek you know it's like star trek 5 you know um shuttle bay has that big like barricade that shoots up when the ship comes crashing in like that's also your job um just as much as it is launching the thing out the 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 hangar door you know so yeah the soft fail is important yes it is i uh, i learned more from the soft fail myself from from building up the oh i think i'm really doing this well to that soul-crushing moment where you you have the out because you had a setback and then yep. overcoming that. And I, and it's teaching them that that failure is part of the growth, I think. Right. Is, is, and it, it's an important part of the learning process. And if you're, if you're overconfident, you might be just at that point right before that cr soul-crushing failure that rebuilds you with the knowledge of, you know, the, what you learned from failing. Yep. And the other thing, too, is learning that very rarely very very rarely does failure end up being something that is truly soul crushing like yeah. like 99% of the time unless you're flying an airplane that's mm -hmm. failing at flying an airplane could result in a, a failure that you cannot you know recover from um, nobody dies from our work nobody dies well, unless it's student affairs, maybe. Um, 
but but I just say that in a in a very like the world is a different place right now, especially when it comes to True. mental health and things like that. But um, when it comes to marketing, like there is no life or death situation in marketing. I'm sorry to say there's not. Um, and, uh, you know, you student affairs folks that listen to the show, a dev- different story. Um, admissions, nothing necessarily life or death there either. You know, I mean, there's just in a lot of, in a lot of what we do in higher ed, it's, it's just, you can, you can figure it out. Um, and you can try again. Yeah. And I, I feel like workplaces that cultivate that culture of allowing the soft fail and still having trust in someone who has the soft fail, um, you end up getting better work. I've, I've worked, I've worked in various places and, um, and I noticed that when you are somewhere that doesn't allow the soft fail, there's a lot of the shifting blame, the risk averse, um, you know, the risk averse behaviors and, and whatnot. But being able to, you know, make mistakes and not have somebody say, well, we're never letting you try that again. And <laughs> instead saying, well, what did you learn from it? What would you do differently? In fact, even when I, when we interview candidates, um, I was once taught, I, I took this, Penn State used to offer this class on how to hire people and how to interview. And they always say, ask the behavior-based questions because people genuinely don't change. And so the questions I would ask are things like, can you tell me about a mistake you made and what you learned from it and what you would do differently? And the reason being is, you know, you could ask people, what are your weaknesses? And they're just going to Google something. Mm-hmm. related to the weaknesses. But if you can get people telling stories and reflecting My on My weakness them. is I want to work as hard as I can. And sometimes <laughs> I work too hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. You get the canned answers, but if you really start asking behavioral based questions and say, well, well, have you ever been in a situation where you had to make a special exemption um, call back to my lightning talk. Yeah. Um, you know, what did you do? Would you do it differently now? You know, just just getting people to reflect. And that was a big part of when I learned to be, to be a teacher was the idea that you had to reflect on your work so that you become better at it. And that's that's part of what we should do as mentors is ask people to reflect and to, to um, you know, as a parent, I tell my kids, you know, um, accept responsibility, apologize and accept responsibility when something doesn't go your way. But professionally, that's what we do too, is we should feel comfortable enough to accept responsibility, figure out how to solve a problem. And, you know, what, what are we going to try next time? What can we do to make sure this doesn't happen? That's right. Well, we're kind of running out of time. If you can believe it, that went by fast. Um, Oh, geez. So, <laughs> so if you could, um, kind of one last thought for, for the folks listening to the show, um, what is, uh, what is your, you know, number one piece of advice for people that are, that want to mentor someone or are currently mentoring someone, you know, what should they always keep in their mind? I think, you know, as a, men- a mentee, you should be thinking about what you want to learn or get out of it. As a mentor, if the mentee hasn't made that clear, you should um, you should definitely work on figuring out what those skills are that you're focusing on. 
And, um, and from there, you know, recognizing that and building that as a, as a skill. I think that um, also, if you want to be a mentor, you don't have to wait for somebody to ask and understand that some people, some people don't know how to ask or don't feel, um, they don't feel comfortable asking you to give your time. But if you offer it, uh, they'll be appreciative. That's great. Um, Well, thanks, Nikki, for joining us on the show this week. Sure. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, no problem. Listeners, head down to higher.social and get links to the stuff we talked about today and subscribe to the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find us and it lets us know what you think of the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at HES Podcast. Send us a tweet. We love talking to you. And don't forget to let us know if you want to be on the show. Higher Ed Social was created by Jackie Vitrano and me, Logan Bishop, and is produced by the amazing Emma Hawes. We're part of the Connect EDU network, the first podcast network for higher education. Visit the website connectedu.network and subscribe to some awesome shows no matter where you work on campus. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.